We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning. Mark chapter 10 is where we are. So if you have a Bible, if you haven't already, please open to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Always open your Bible when someone stands up to preach. Make sure they're telling you what's in the Scriptures. Now, it's my conviction that expository preaching is the most faithful way to preach the Word of God. And what do I mean by that? I mean expository preaching. I mean the, uh, that which preaching that explains what the text means by what it says and then seeks to exhort the listeners to trust and obey the God-intended message of the text. It's preaching in which the point of the message is rooted in, aligns with, and flows from the primary meaning of, of the text itself. And while I don't, you don't have to preach sequentially through books of the Bible to do that, you can do that many different ways, I, I believe it's helpful to do that for a number of ways. I'll give you two. The first one is it allows God to assign the topics, not the preacher. Um, when I preach consecutively through a book, I can't just choose the topic I want to preach on. And more importantly, I can't skip difficult topics without you knowing at least. <laughs> we have to address them head on as we should, as they come up in the text. This also, though, frees me up uh, so that when I address a difficult topic, you know I'm not doing it with any sort of, there's no reason behind it. I'm addressing that topic because it's the next topic in the text. You don't have to speculate why I am addressing a hard topic. I'm not trying to promote an agenda. I begin that way this morning because we come to a difficult passage in the Bible. Mark chapter 10, we come to the topic of divorce and remarriage. And if I may be honest, I would rather skip this text this morning. But it's not up to me. I've committed to preach through the book of Mark. And these 12 verses are what is in front of us this morning. So you don't have to speculate. You can't speculate why I'm preaching this text. I didn't choose this text. This text, this text chose us this morning. It's where God has us. So we have the privilege this morning of sitting under the Word, under the authority of God's Word, to hear what our Lord Jesus has to say concerning this important issue regarding divorce and remarriage. Now, few things are more painful than a divorce. It's often long years in coming and even longer in settlement and adjustment, especially for children. The sense of failure and guilt can be torturing to a person. Tension over custody and financial support only really deepen the wounds. And kids are left in a confusing world of identity crisis, often move back and forth for visitation and resettling where they need to live. And statistics tell us that divorce in America happens about almost 50% of the time. Almost four and a half times out of every marriage in America ends in divorce. Now there's two ways to respond to this topic. Two ways to respond with love and compassion. My intent is to do that this morning. One is uh, to come alongside the divorced person and love them with the truths of the gospel. Remind them of the truth of God's forgiveness and strength 
that they find in Christ remind them of God's faithfulness as we sung this morning. But we also must be able to respond with love and compassion by articulating really a hatred for divorce and explaining why it goes against the will of God and plead for us as God's people to keep it from happening. So we have to be able to do both. And my prayer is that I will be able to do both. And my prayer is that you will be able to receive me doing both this morning as we begin. Now it's important we remember we are in Mark's focus section dealing with discipleship. So at first, uh, divorce might seem an odd topic kind of sandwiched into this section here by Mark. But it's not. Discipleship is all-encompassing. And to follow Jesus faithfully, the gospel must be infused or pushed down into every crack and crevice of our lives. As disciples, every area of our life is to be informed and dictated by the gospel. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage included. So here's my statement I want to argue to you this morning, if you want to write it down from our text. That following Jesus is about living with a gospel motivation. To see God's divine intention expressed in every area of our lives, including marriage and divorce. My wife says I'm often wordy. I think I am this morning. Following Jesus is about living with a gospel motivation to see God's divine intention expressed in every area of our lives, including marriage and divorce. Mark chapter 10, if you'll let your eyes go down to verse 1, I'm going to read through the verse uh, 12 verses there. This is God's word to us. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning... God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus, we, we pause and, Lord, we always pause to ask for your grace, to ask that we would be faithful to your text, to ask that you would guide our, our time in your word, that uh, the Spirit would be at work as we're thinking about the text. But Lord, I want to ask that especially this morning, Lord, me as a young man, to stand behind your eternal word and to speak regarding a topic as heavy and as weighty as divorce and remarriage, which I know affects really everyone in this room, and some more difficult than others. Lord, I ask for a special measure of your grace this morning, that the word would fall upon hearts that would receive it, and would hear the tender mercy and the faithfulness of our God as a response to it. Lord, we want to honor you, so help us honor you in what's done and said in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm really just going to run, walk through this text 
make a few applications and then get to the end and give us some concluding application, a little different to what I usually do in a sermon, but we'll move through it. We're going to first look at the test of the Pharisees in verses 1 through 4. And, you know, we begin where Jesus, uh, again, where Jesus is, he's with the crowds. It's a normal place. We've seen him a lot. He's with the crowds in verse 1, and we read, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. The focus of Jesus' ministry has been and continues to be uh, teaching and instructing. Jesus is faithful to seize every opportunity to teach concerning the kingdom of God. But what we see here is Jesus is not the only group trying to seize an opportunity with the crowd. We see in verse 2, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are present as well. And like usual, they come not with honest questions and engagement, but the text says, to test Jesus. The Pharisees were slippery, crafty individuals. They pounce on this opportunity to deliver a loaded question, and they do so in front of this large crowd, this large audience. So they ask Jesus publicly, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In Matthew's retelling of this event, Matthew chapter 19, the question is even more pointed. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, we hear? Now this may seem like an odd question here, but it was actually a very strategic one in this setting. John the Baptist had just been put to death by King Herod for criticizing his marriage to Herodias, who had divorced her husband under Herod's instruction to marry him. So there was great interest by everyone in Jesus' answer, and especially the Pharisees, who desire to ensnare Jesus with a public statement that put him at odds with Herod and the larger authorities. But as Jesus often does, he counters their question with a question of his own. In verse 3, look at it. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And very interesting, instead of quoting what Moses and the law commanded, they jump quickly to a very disputed passage in Deuteronomy 24 addressing the permission of marriage. They said in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now the citing of this verse from Deuteronomy opened a can of worms. And they knew this. And that was their intent. There was a, a heated social and theological dispute amongst the Jews concerning the interpretation of this verse, really the only passage in the Old Testament stating grounds or the procedures for divorce. Deuteronomy 24 reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. The heated controversy surrounded this phrase, some indecency, which is not at all together clear. This word describes something being indecent or objectionable or offensive. And, and there were two dominant and rival schools of interpretation which had really grown out of or developed concerning this little phrase. One was very liberal and interpreted indecency in the broadest way possible. It was said divorce was permitted if the wife even ruined the husband's dinner simply, or simply found he found another woman who was more attractive. So any, any permission possible. But thankfully there was another rabbinic tradition which limited some indecency to offenses of marital misconduct just short of adultery. Now, it's important that I say just short of adultery because 
we know from our Bibles that some indecency in the time of Moses could not mean adultery because adultery was punishable by execution in the Old Testament. We know that. So what's behind this deception, this deceptive question by the Pharisees is this controversy over the meaning of this phrase as the grounds of divorce. Again, they are trying to ensnare Jesus into this long-standing debate and exploit his response to further their rejection of him. They have come to test him, for sure. But Jesus does respond in verses 5 through 9. And he responds with a, in a two-fold manner. First, he responds by pointing out Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24.1 were not an imperative, but a concession. In other words, it did not set forth the absolute and perfect will of God. It set forth God's will in light of human sin. Verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this command. Notice Jesus says, Your hardness of heart. Bringing the Pharisees into this reality. We find something interesting here. We find the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're not teaching and instructing God's divine prescription concerning marriage. Their sinful hearts has forced them really to focus on trying to define what is permissible for divorce. What are the concessions? On what grounds can we get a divorce? We do this. We do this with a, a myriad of issues in the Christian life. Whether it's dating, sex, marriage, alcohol, fill in the blank. We know the boundary. We know the boundary line. We know what God's Word says about it. We know the prescription. It's clear. But due to our hardness of heart, we, we spend our time, our energy, and our thought trying to determine how close we can get to that line without actually going over it and against the will of God. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus. I don't want to say to you this morning, we can't live this way if we're going to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus, we cannot live our lives in light of concession and permission due to our fallenness. We must live with a, a gospel motivation to see God's divine intention for our lives expressed in every area. Because that's where true freedom and happiness is found. Difficulty and entanglement comes when we try and live our lives in light of concession all the time, permission all the time. How far can we go instead of what is God's original intent for our life? In other words, maybe we give a few examples. I know I'm not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, but how close to that line can I get before I cross over? I know the Bible says not to get drunk, but how much alcohol can I consume before I'm considered drunk? Let me just say, I, I, I'm good with dating and drinking alcohol. I think it's very permissible and it's in the Bible. So you hear that from Pastor Jimmy this morning. What I'm challenging is the heart that's behind it. This goes well beyond alcohol and dating. Are you living your life always trying to determine how close to the line you can get without crossing over it? Or are you living with a gospel motivation to live within God's intended boundaries for your life because you know that that's what's best for you? 
That's what's intended for you. That's the place for you. That's where you flourish and find God's true understanding of what it means to walk with Him. We must engage our heart here. It's a, our hardness of heart what causes us to try and live the Christian life solely by permission and concession. And Jesus is clear that this topic of permission regarding divorce is only a topic at all because of sin, because of their sinful hearts. I want to read you a quote. It says this, Any view of divorce and remarriage taught in either testament, new or old, that sees the problem in terms of what may I do or not do has already overlooked a very basic fact. The divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. That's the point. We must not miss this. Because of uh, the sinful, rebellious heart of the people, Moses never commanded divorce, as the Pharisees seemed to be alluding to. He permitted it. What Moses did command was the granting of a divorce certificate solely, or at least mostly, I should say, for the woman's protection. When you go home today, go back and read the full chapter. If you go and read on in the following verses there in Deuteronomy 24, you'll see that without such a certificate, the divorced woman would be subject to exploitation. The certificate prevented the man from treating her like property and simply forcing her back into a marriage whenever he wanted to. So the reason God allowed divorce was in response to the hard ugliness of man's heart. So maybe we can say it this way. There is permission. But it was a, a permission in response to sin in order to mitigate its damaging effects on our lives. But then in verse 6, Jesus goes deeper with a real punch to the gut here. Jesus says, okay guys, since you're so quick to quote Moses, let's go... And look at what else Moses said about marriage. Verse 6. But, depicting a strong contrast to this permission discussion, but from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, as a side note, but an important one, I think. We need to be cautious. We need to have a caution here about messing around with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, trying to suggest there's something other than history. Because to do this, we miss the fact that the Lord Jesus himself does not quote Genesis here as some myth or some allegory. He quotes Genesis 1 and 2 as historical fact, which informs our lives particularly the issue of marriage here. I, I know. And there's some room here to move around a bit, but if we go and start fiddling with the text and saying it's something other than history, we need to be careful. I think we're going to end up with a view of Genesis 1 and 2, which is in contrast to the Lord Jesus Himself. We need to be careful. And Jesus goes back to the ideal from the creation account of Genesis 2, 23 through 24, to show that in the beginning, divorce was inconceivable and impossible. And by quoting the creation narrative, Jesus points out three important realities concerning marriage that we need to hear this morning. So first, Jesus highlights the intimacy of marriage. You want to write that? He says, the two shall become one flesh. 
There is no deeper intimacy in terms of earthly relationship than marriage. Look, as close as Julie and I am to our kids, they even come from our own bodies. I'll do anything for my kids. We are not one flesh with our kids. I'm only one flesh with my wife. There's no relationship on this earth which trumps the priority of the husband and the wife. And I want to push a little bit here, parents. Because this is one of the most important lessons we must teach our kids. That they are second in the family. I know that goes against everything in our kid-centered culture. Please hear me. It's biblical. The most loving thing you can do for your kids is let them know that your family is built on a love that takes priority over them. If you were at my dinner table with my family and you heard me ask my kids, who does dad love the most at this table? And you would no doubt see some snickering. You'd maybe even hear a few jokes about Addie. My boys call her the special child because they say she gets special treatment. But ultimately, you would hear them say, Dad loves Mom the most in our family. And they would say that because I tell them that. And I try my best, by my God-given ability, in light of my failings and my sin, to express that to my wife in front of my boys, especially, and my kids. Because I believe it's a foundational, biblical truth. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know what this text tells me? This text tells me that I'm supposed to raise my kids to love someone more than me. That's hard for us as parents to swallow. It's biblical. It's foundational to discipling our kids in terms of marriage. Parents, You must seek to raise your kids, to disciple your kids, to love someone more than you. We must labor first for our kids' kids love for Jesus to supersede their love for us. We know that, first and foremost. But we must secondly uh, disciple our kids to find a love which supersedes us with a godly young man or young woman. A beautiful young woman who reflects the character of Christ. In my prayer is that my little Addie will one day leave us in the biblical sense and find a man who loves Jesus like dad more than dad. That's discipleship. We should be the model that our daughters want to see and want to follow. We should represent Christ to them. My prayer for my boys is that they will leave one day in a biblical sense and cleave to a woman who is godly, gracious, beautiful, patient, and faithful as their mama is. You must not miss the intimacy of marriage embedded in the creation narrative. Secondly, Jesus speaks to the exclusivity of marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. That's it. Don't shoot the messenger. God made male and female. Therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. 
Not three folks. Not man not, and, and man. Not woman and woman. Man shall leave and cleave to his wife. That's marriage. Defined from the pages of Scripture. We get to choose what we want to do with it. One man, one woman. It, marriage is exclusive. Thirdly, and Jesus' real emphasis here, is the, the permanence of marriage. Jesus provides his interpretation from the creation mandate in verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God's ideal was and is a monogamous, intimate, heterosexual, enduring marriage. Anything less is a deviation from God's divine model. That's not all... That, that, That's all Jesus has to say to the Pharisees in the text, right? He's done with them. Conversation regarding divorce is over. He has no more to say to... He has more to say to the disciples, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But for the Pharisees, he's done. They came with their dishonest questions of testing Jesus, trying to put him at odds with Herod and, most importantly, Jesus, and he silenced them. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No, it's not lawful. It contradicts the ultimate meaning of marriage. Goodbye. I think there's an application there for people. We know honest questions when people really want to know truth. We should engage them with as much love, compassion as we can. We also know when people are posing a question just because they want to stir up an issue. What should we do? Tell them what God's Word says and walk off. They're not honestly seeking truth. But those who are seeking truth, we should take time and invest and explain and walk through the truth with them. So now we come to the lesson of the disciples, verse 10 through 12. Jesus has instructions or a lesson for his disciples, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples ask him again, what does this matter? Jesus loves honest questions. Can I say that to you? Jesus loves your questions. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus questions. Be prepared for the answer. But he loves honest questions. The disciples are seeking truth, and Jesus responds. He says in verse 11, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, the text says. Jesus clarifies here what's at stake in divorce. For a man or a woman to divorce their spouse and marry another is an act of adultery against their previous spouse. Jesus makes a remarkable, revolutionary statement here. We should not miss it. In Israel, adultery was considered only through an extramarital sexual relationship. Jesus presents something far more radical. To to remarry after divorce is to commit adultery against your former spouse, he says. Even the sex within the new marriage is considered adultery. A breaking of the one flesh covenant union instituted in creation. This is a, a revolutionary hard statement, I know. But this is not the only place Jesus says this. Matthew 5, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, where he uses his famous statement that begins with variations of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Statements represent a superior righteousness of Christ that he's setting forth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 we read, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is Jesus speaking. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' understanding is not based upon man's sinful desire to find concessions and permission and loopholes. It's rooted in God's divine intention. The Lord Jesus Christ permitted divorce and remarriage on one ground and one ground only. Sexual immorality. Now, why didn't Jesus give that exception in Mark? Maybe you say, why would Jesus include the exception of sexual immorality in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and then again in Matthew 19, but leave it out in Mark and Luke? Should we be alarmed here? I don't, not at all. We, everyone accepted this. Everyone accepted this. No one would have been shocked by this. Nobody would question marital infidelity as grounds for divorce. Look, these are Jewish people. They know the Jewish law. And remember, by Old Testament law, adultery was an offense punishable by death. So as one commentator points out, it seems far more likely that its absence from Mark and Luke is not due to their ignorance of it, but to their acceptance of it. Something taken for granted. After all, under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. So nobody would have questioned that marital unfaithfulness was a ground for divorce. Now, let's unpack a little more and then we're going to find some application here. The word here, sexual immorality, found in Matthew, in both cases, is the word pornea. Where we get our word pornography from. Pornea means fornication, prostitution, or any other sexual intercourse. Breaking the one flesh union is the point. When applied to marriage, it means, as our text says, sexual immorality or forbidden intercourse in terms of adultery. And it's important to note this offense was originally punished by death under the Mosaic Law. So while in a much harsher sense, adultery as grounds for terminating marriage had always been the case. It was nothing new. The question was, what other permission Jesus answers none. Divorce is permissible only on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now let me be clear here. Jesus permits it. Jesus doesn't command it. Divorce is never, ever mandatory. Again, as disciples, we must apply the gospel, the grace of God to every area of our lives. Far too often men and women eagerly point out the infidelity of a spouse to get out of a relationship they're trying to ditch anyway. It's easy to look for a way out instead of dealing with the issues. But at the same time, maybe say this, we cannot minimize the sin of adultery. We can't do that. Never. It does defy the intent of marriage. But let me couple it with this. This is what I believe and this is my pastoral counsel to anyone. We should not regard a one-time affair as an easy excuse for divorce. I believe we should think think of this as an unfaithful lifestyle. A spouse who refuses to turn and repent in their adulterous ways. The call of the gospel is repentance. Amen? The difficulty is when we have a refusal to repent. 
Now, there's one more text I must deal with before we make some application on this issue. 1 Corinthians 7. So if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gives advice to a few groups of people concerning marriage. Right, he addresses the unmarried in verses 8 and 9 and the married believers in 10 and 11. But then he moves to address mixed marriages, something Jesus did not, nor even could Jesus have during his time. There were no Christians born of the Spirit in Jesus' time. That came after Jesus rose from the grave and entered into heaven and the Holy Spirit had come. So an issue of mixed marriage was not an issue that Jesus could address. Paul begins in verse 12, you see it there, addressing these mixed marriages by stating, To the rest I say, not... I, uh, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, some have wrongfully concluded that Paul is claiming his words not to be as authoritative as Jesus, so, you know, it's kind of his opinion. Well, that really unravels our whole understanding of the inerrancy of the Bible and the authority of the Bible. It's not what's going on here. I think really what he's saying is, I'm dealing with a case which Jesus never dealt with. It didn't exist in the days of Jesus, so he doesn't give his verdict on it here. Paul speaks with full apostolic authority as every other writer in the New Testament does. And he says in verse 12, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul's dealing with marriage in Corinthians in which one spouse hold has come to uh, become a Christian after marriage, thus producing mixed marriages. So, do I take away my counsel to young people that if there's a, a, a Christian and a non-Christian, that they should not get married? No, I don't take that counsel away. This is a specific situation going on here. No one knew Christ. They come in and start preaching the gospel. People start coming to faith in Christ who are already married, and now we have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. So he says, stay with him. Why? Because sexual immorality is not taking place. That's why. And secondly, the believing spouse can be the greatest influencer of the children and the other ones coming to Christ. We see that in verse 14. But verse 15 says, look at it. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if the unbelieving spouse deserts or abandons the believing spouse, which was happening at this time apparently, then let him go or let her go. The believing spouse is not enslaved or is not bound, the word is here, to the marriage. So, here's my interpretation. Here it comes from your pastor. There are two grounds for divorce in the New Testament. Sexual immorality and the desertion of a believing spouse by an unbeliever. And that's it. Now, I want to provide some application here because I know this is heavy. Heavy for me to even preach it. I want to bring some gospel to this for us, okay? So I want to give us three applications that we should walk away with, okay? First one is this. Marriage is not God's marriage is God's divine institution for our good and the glory of Christ. Okay? Anything less than this will make Jesus' words on divorce seem strangely harsh and really unloving. To understand and experience marriage as God intended it, we must understand marriage in biblical terms. Marriage is not about your self-fulfillment. 
It's not about your self-satisfaction. It's, about, it's not about you finding your true self by marrying your soulmate. Marriage is about the glory of Christ. I can't do everything in a sermon. But we find this in Ephesians 5. We find this in Revelation 22. Marriage is about the glory of Christ. It's about displaying the covenant faithfulness of God in the gospel. That's what it's about. God does not exist to magnify our marriages. He doesn't. He's not here to give you satisfaction of finding a soulmate ultimately. God has ordained marriage as a means to magnify the truth, the value, the beauty, and the greatness of Christ. Marriage is God's divine institution He graciously gives us to enjoy for the purpose of His glory. So marriage is God's divine institution for our good and the glory of Christ. Secondly, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Can I say that again? Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Unbelief, your unwillingness to accept Jesus is the only unpardonable sin. If you accept the Holy Spirit, the only means by which you can receive salvation, that's the unpardonable sin. That's it. I've preached on that text before. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I know Jesus' words are difficult to hear this morning for a myriad of reasons in this room. In a room this size, many of you have experienced divorce, infidelity, and heartbreak. It's close to my family. I'm very aware that Jesus' teaching on a topic like marriage and divorce is painful for some of you. But I want you to know I love you. And because I love you, I want you to know what God's Word says so you can live within the bounds of His intended purpose for your life. So you find yourself this morning convicted by Jesus' teaching or you, you find yourself on the wrong side of Jesus' teaching this morning. Please know this is a safe and good place for you this morning. Because you can find yourself at the feet of an all-gracious and merciful Savior this morning. The sin of divorce, sexual immorality, and an improper remarriage is covered by the same blood every other sin is covered by. And the means of receiving that covering and forgiveness is the same. We repent. We confess our wrongdoing. We recognize the depth of our depravity before a holy God and we plead for His mercy which He has promised us in Christ. Divorce and sexual immorality is not the unpardonable sin. Listen to me. Don't leave here this morning with that lie in your head. Pastor Jimmy did not give it to you this morning. And the Word of God did not speak it to you this morning. Thirdly, Jesus is the only true faithful husband. No one in this room is faithful but God Himself. We are all unfaithful. Everyone in this room has committed spiritual adultery before the Lord. Everyone. We have all cheated on God. We, have, we, we currently do this. This was the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. 
It's a narrative you can, it's a, it's a theme, a major theme you can trace throughout the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1, the prophet says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. The call by God to the prophet Hosea to love his adulterous, unfaithful wife, Gomer, it's a gospel parable of the way Christ would love us and has loved us as his bride, the church. We sought after, and we still do seek after, finding satisfaction and fulfillment in things or people other than God. Which is spiritual adultery? We chase after other lovers. Our hearts are prone to wonder. We are an unfaithful, adulterous bride. And yet Christ alone is our faithful husband. So let me try to say this to you. Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, as radical as they seem, as difficult as they are to hear, are actually great news for everyone in this room, even to someone who has walked through a divorce and remarriage. Jesus says, don't divorce your spouse and marry someone else because it's adultery. And adultery is so damaging because it betrays the truth about Christ that marriage is meant to display, and we have all done that spiritually. And here's the good news. Here's the gospel for you. Jesus never, ever, ever, ever does that to His bride, the church. He never forsakes us. He never abuses us. He never abandons us. He always loves us in tender mercy and gentle faithfulness. He always takes us back when we wander off. He loves us. Not just with an unconditional love without conditions. But as many have said, He loves us contra-conditionally, against all conditions. In spite of our continual pursuit of false lovers, He lavishes His gracious affections on us through the Gospel. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? That you are faithful, that, that God is faithful, even when we are faithless. Listen to me. The gospel reminds us that we are all equally without hope. No matter what sin we bring to the seat you're sitting in this morning, we all bring something that makes us guilty before a holy and righteous God. We do not look to one another in our sin and in any way puff ourselves up. We're all equally guilty before a holy and righteous God. But for those, for every one of us who have received Christ, we are equally loved, cherished, valued, and honored because of what Christ has done for us this morning. Do not walk out of here this morning discouraged in any way. 
be encouraged by the faithfulness of God in the gospel. Discipleship demands us getting the gospel down into every crack and crevice of our lives, which most definitely includes marriage and divorce and remarriage. We will not faithfully follow Jesus if we live our lives based upon permission in light of sin. We're always trying to get close to that line without crossing it. We're always going to stumble. We're never going to live a faithful life. We must live with a gospel motivation. We must see the truths of the gospel every day. We must see the faithfulness of God in light of our unfaithfulness. To see God's divine intent expressed in every area of our life. So again, following Jesus is about living with a gospel motivation to see God's divine intention expressed in every area of our lives, including marriage and divorce. I... I plead with you this morning to hear that I love you. And I love you because I try to give you the Word of God. I want you to know the truth. I don't want to jump over texts like this. I want you to hear it. I want you to be able to walk in God's intended purpose for your life. And that only comes by you understanding the God that we serve in the Gospel what He's done for us in Christ. So we're going to pray pray and close out my service and we're going to sing a few songs. I'm here after service. If anyone wants to pray in any way, want to know more about accepting Jesus, what it looks like to become a Christian, if your heart's just heavy this morning and you want to pray, I'm here to pray with you. I'll be up front following the service. So let me pray. Father, we, we love you. And we only love you because you first loved us. And we know that the character of the God that we serve is a God who would somehow see fit by your grace and your mercy to look down upon a human race of unfaithful people, of adulterous people, and to come live among us to enter into the brokenness of our mess that we created and to bear that mess upon your shoulders on the cross so that you might bring us back into your divine intended sphere where you want us to live. Lord, I, I thank you for the marriages in our church. I pray we would cherish the one flesh union that we have and that we would try to honor the one flesh union through the one spirit union we have with Christ. I pray for anyone in this room who hears a text like today with pain and regret and difficulty. Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus this morning. That He loves us in the gospel. Yes, He sees our sin, He sees our unfaithfulness, but yet He comes to us in grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, that we would know that if, we're, if we repent of our sins, we know you are faithful and just to forgive us and cover us with all righteousness this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are considering marriage. We have many in our church. I, I pray, Lord, that they would look to the Bible to determine what marriage is, not what our culture says. 
They would enter into marriage seeking for self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment, but they would enter into marriage with a, a sole purpose of living out the truth of the gospel in Christ, trying to declare the God that we serve through an institution called marriage. Lord, as a church, I pray we would be a bride that understands the redemption and the restoration that we have received in you. That we would understand we are an unworthy, unfit bride. But we are a glorious bride in Christ. And that we would be that for a watching world around us. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we sing now. Amen.